0: Matthew five, seventeen through 48. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, that's a long reading. Well done, Rachel, with some challenging words from Jesus. How do you feel after listening to that? Um, Listen to your soul for a minute. Listen to your heart. Uh, And I suspect we have various feelings going on in the room, hearing those words from Jesus. I suspect some of you might feel dread. You might hear what Jesus says there and think, I've done those things. Jesus says you go to hell if you do those things. Others of you might uh, hear Jesus here and feel obligation, a sense of duty. I have to do these things to live. I suspect others of you might feel a sense of resignation, throwing your hands in the air, saying to yourself, there's no way this is possible. Be perfect. You've got to be kidding me. Surely, Jesus is exaggerating. C.S. Lewis has a chapter towards the end of mere Christianity called, Is Christianity Hard or Easy? And in the chapter, Lewis says that when we read Jesus's commands, we tend to think of it like this. Being a, becoming a Christian means that we submit to the demands of Jesus because we're told that we have to and that it's dangerous not to do so. But deep down, we sometimes hope that there will come a day when we've done what we should and then we can get on with our lives with what we want to be doing, if we're totally honest. Lewis writes this at one point, quote, we are very like an honest man paying his taxes. He pays them all right, but he does hope that there will be enough left over for him to live on. Then Lewis says, as long as we are thinking that way, one or other of two results is likely to follow. Either we give up trying to be good or else we become very unhappy indeed. I think that can happen to us when we hear the law that Jesus here without question calls us to obey. That's why it's so easy to misunderstand or to react in the wrong way to Jesus's words in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. But listen, hearing Jesus correctly means this. Listen, God does not Just want behavior conformity from you. He wants all of you. He wants your heart. All of it. And when you give it to him, you finally get the life you were made for. That's the point. And that's what I hope we'll see Jesus tell us repeatedly this morning. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And very significantly, Jesus began the sermon we've seen the last couple of weeks by telling us who we are. The kingdom of God is for the poor in spirit. It's for people who have nothing. It's for people who are nothing. It's for people who can offer nothing to God or to anyone else. Jesus comes for those types of people. And because of what Jesus does in rescuing us, he told us last week that we have this incredible calling as salt and light in the world. Now, Jesus, having told us who we are, gives us commands. He is like the new Moses No longer on Mount Sinai giving Ten Commandments, but on another mountain, radically reinterpreting the law of Moses, the Torah of the Old Testament, and showing us what our lives are to be like if we are in God's kingdom. Now, hear me, you cannot mix up the order of Christ's teaching here or you ruin everything. You're going to ruin your spiritual life if you mix it up. First is our blessing. God loves us in all of our ruin and mess. And he brings us in by grace. Second is our calling. Once we are in, we are called into a new way of life, the way of obedience, the way of Jesus. And that's what Christ lays out for us here. I realize this could be easily seven sermons. I'm not going to preach seven sermons in a row to you here. You're welcome. I'm going to summarize this in 30,000 feet in two big sections. We're going to see first that Christ fulfills the law for us and second, that Christ gives the law to us. Okay, let's go. First, Christ fulfills the law for us. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says that he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill the law. Now, why would Jesus feel the need to say this? And the answer is, is because the Jewish religious establishment, the scribes and the Pharisees, who are mentioned by Jesus a little bit later, would have absolutely thought and accused Jesus of doing that, of abolishing God's law given through Moses, which these Jewish leaders claim to love more than anything else. That word abolish, it's it's a demolition word. Have you ever seen, you know, one of those, I don't know the right terms for these, one of those massive cranes with like the gigantic steel ball attached to a chain as it swings and just decimates a building or a structure. It demolishes everything in its path. That idea, that image of demolition, is what these scribes and Pharisees would have accused Jesus of doing to their beloved law. Why? It's because these Jewish leaders had taken God's law with its requirements of holiness and purity and created an entire structure of misinterpretation that actually led to division and hatred rather than to unity and love. And so because of that, they saw Jesus as a threat They saw Jesus as a great enemy because he applied the law correctly and loved people. Jesus healed people on the Sabbath, and that made these Pharisees angry. Jesus spent time with the lowly, with sinners. He was called by them a drunkard. He was called by them a glutton. And so Jesus says in response, you don't understand me nor do you understand the law. I haven't come to abolish. I haven't come to demolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. What does Jesus mean then when he says that? For one, he means that in his own life, Jesus is showing the way of obedience to God's law is the way of blessedness. It's the way of true happiness. Think about Jesus. He was... He was a pretty happy guy. He was full of joy. He was full of hope. He was full of love because of God's law, not in spite of God's law. Why did Jesus spend time with sinful people? Because he loved God's law and therefore cared for the weak and the sinful. The Pharisees misinterpreted both Jesus and the law they claim to love. Jesus fulfills it in that he shows us that obeying God is the best of all possible lives. But he also fulfills it in his role as our savior, in his role as our mediator. A couple of weeks ago, when we looked at Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan, I introduced you to this theological phrase, the active obedience of Jesus. Jesus obeys God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loves the Lord and he loves his neighbor and he gives that obedience to his people. He succeeds where we fail. Jesus fulfills the law then in that he obeys God for us. He obeys God in our place He loves God in our place. He honors and serves God in our place. This is the good news of the gospel. Do you know this? Jesus fulfills the law in that he keeps it entirely, gaining the righteousness before God that we can never have. That's what the new covenant is all about. That's what the prophets of the Old Testament promised Jeremiah, one of those prophets, famously says in Jeremiah 31, God promises through him, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be my God, and they will be my people. In Jesus, that promise is fulfilled because Jesus obeys God in our place and then gives us his righteousness. God knows that we fail to love him. God knows you fail to love him. God knows you cannot obey him on your own. God knows that we are unrighteous, impure before him. So he sent Jesus to do what we cannot. And through faith in Jesus, we are given Jesus' righteous standing. And the Holy Spirit is poured into our hearts And as Jeremiah promised, we now have the law written on our hearts. Jesus fulfills the law because he is the yes and amen of all of God's promises. He is the true and faithful witness. That's why he tells us until heaven and earth pass away. Verse 18, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus has done that. Jesus comes with the law in his hands, not to destroy it, nor to destroy us but as one who would fulfill it and as one who would save us. What great news that is for those of us who feel dread when you hear the law, for those of us who feel condemnation. The law does condemn us. It does. But not with the purpose to keep us there, but to drive us to Jesus who fulfills it for us. So listen to me. When you feel your failure when you sense the reality of your rebellion, your violation of God's good commandments over your life, look to Jesus Christ in faith. Our sin cost him his life. That's the penalty. He paid for us. But what does he say on the cross? It is finished. We have no need to fear God's wrath. We have no need to fear condemnation because Jesus has taken it for us and brought us into his kingdom. He fulfills the law, but he also gives the law to us. Look at what he says in verse 20. I tell you, unless your righteousness, not my righteousness, your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees who were known as the two most righteous types of people in the world in that day, you will never enter the kingdom. Then he proceeds to reinterpret the law for us. And what's most critical, what is most critical is that Jesus teaches again and again that true obedience, that right living flows from a transformed heart. The Pharisees had truncated and shortened the law and externalized it So that only outward conformity, if you can play the part well, that counts. But Jesus again and again says, no. He goes for the heart, shot to the heart, Bon Jovi reference. And Jesus tells us here, as disciples, very clearly that if you have experienced his love and his forgiveness and his grace. And if you've been brought into the kingdom of heaven, then listen, you will obey my commands. And you will obey my commands from the heart. God wants our hearts. God wants our love. He doesn't just want external conformity. He wants all of you. If you're a parent, you can get this, right? You know what? Even if you're not a parent, remember when you were a kid, Whenever your family does house chores, for my family, that's usually on Saturday mornings, Uh, you see the difference between external conformity and between love from the heart. When I come down from the mountain with my face glowing and give commands to my children, thou shalt wash the dishes and clean your bedrooms and help me out in the backyard, I very often... And I feel this way too. I'm not trying to get on to my kids is how I feel. I'm just doing it out of sheer drudgery, complete external obedience. Is your house a happy house when people are acting out of sheer drudgery and complete external obedience? No, it's because we want the heart. We want our families to want our home to be a welcoming and loving place. I want my kids to want that, but I barely want that. So why would I expect them to want it? Where's the heart? We ask. We want them to join us out of love in in the work, but it often doesn't happen that way. It's easy for us, especially if we're religious types by nature, to go after external conformity. God says what I want is true obedience that flows from your changed heart. Jesus is very clear here. If you're really converted, you will obey God. You will grow in obedience. To put it theologically, sanctification inevitably follows justification. A 17th century theologian, Samuel Bolton, put it this way, very short summary. The law is not the power that enables us to salvation, but it is the direction to which salvation enables. And so the way to interpret all these commands from Jesus is not just, I cannot do these. Thank God Jesus did them for me. Don't interpret it just that way. That's the feeling of resignation. You have to also see that Jesus is calling us, if we profess his name, into a radically new, obedient, and righteous way of life. And that we are to seek it and go for it. The commands of Jesus always drive us back to the blessings of Jesus. When you try to obey and you fail, you think, Thank God Jesus is gracious, I'm poor in spirit, and now I see it because I've been trying to be faithful. But the blessings of Jesus always lead us to obeying the commands of Jesus. So what I want to do in the rest of our time is just survey what Jesus's law is. Each of these paragraphs contain Jesus teaching us the true meaning, the internal heart of the law of God. Did you catch the pattern? Every time he gives the old commandment, he says, you have heard that it was said. And then what audacity, by the way, Again, Jesus is not just a good teacher. No, just good moral teacher says, but I say to you, and then reinterprets God's law. He has real authority. He comes and reinterprets God's law, and then he gives, in five of the six commandments at least, practical steps to how we can obey them. So let's look and see what Jesus calls his people into as we follow him in obedience. The first thing he mentions is anger. Verse 21, you've heard that it was said, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. The core of this commandment, which is the sixth commandment of 10, thou shalt not murder, again, is not just external conformity. The Pharisees thought, I've never killed someone, therefore I have obeyed. But Jesus says it's a hard issue. Don't stay angry. Don't nurse hatred against anyone. Jesus is not forbidding you to get angry, by the way. There are many things in the world that you are rightly angry about. And when you're offended by someone, it is not wrong for you to get angry. Paul says in Ephesians 4, in your anger, don't sin. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's not forbidding you from ever getting angry. But he is forbidding us from carrying it around, from nursing it. Jesus here is confronting the decisions that some of us make to be angry people. This is the first commandment Christ gives. Anger is a big deal. Why? Because we use it to control others. It's really just a form of self-righteousness. We feel vindicated, don't we, when we carry around seething resentment against someone else. We feel like we are insiders when we show contempt towards someone who's not in our friend group. On the contrary, Jesus teaches that his people must be those who are reconcilers, verse 24, and those who do it quickly. Don't let anger stew don't nurse a grudge. Don't keep screaming at the guy in the left lane going 45 miles an hour on I 35. Not that I, that's purely hypothetical. Don't live a life that's always angry at President Biden or always angry at the Democrats or always angry at those idiots in Congress. Don't be that way. Christ's call is to turn from it, to lay it down. And if you won't, it will take you straight to judgment. It's that big of a deal. Second, Jesus interprets for us the seventh commandment, lust. He says, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, verse 28, 28, that everyone who looks at a woman or a man, by the way, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his life. Heart. The act of adultery, of sex outside of marriage, violates God's law. But Jesus says, so does looking at someone who is not your spouse with lustful intent. Now, that phrase is really important. It doesn't mean simply noticing a beautiful person. That is not lust. It doesn't even mean being attracted to someone else who you think is attractive. That is not lust. It doesn't even mean being tempted. Jesus was tempted in every way and yet without sin. So we know that we can be tempted and not violate God's law. None of that is lust. Rather, lust is looking at someone, to be blunt, with a sexual purpose. It's staring and going with it. And lust is such a violation because, like anger, the other person is no longer to us really a human being. Because they are now a a thing, a a tool, for us to enjoy ourselves, to feel our power. Remember a couple of weeks ago when it was really, really cold, uh, in the Evans house we lit a fire in the fireplace. And one of the things that always helps us get fire started is to have some kindling right? You start the fire by lighting the kindling, and then the kindling gets the whole fire going. Jesus is saying is that lust is when you use other people as kindling to inflame your own sexual passions. It's not wrong to have sexual passions. God made us as sexual beings. That's a good thing. What's wrong is using another person unjustly to fulfill those passions. Lust is like anger in that it seeks power over another person. Both anger and lust put other people down, though by seemingly opposite emotions, interestingly. Anger by hatred, lust by desire. Jesus demands sexual purity. He calls us to wage decisive warfare against unfaithful lust. Christ takes it deeper. You can violate God's desire for your life, and you can put down other humans, not just by physical adultery, but by wandering eyes by runaway fantasies. There's no one among us who's not guilty of this. Christ's wisdom is to be radical in the solution. Look at what he says. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. Better to go to heaven with one eye. Lust can decimate and destroy your life. As a pastor, I've seen it many times. It's amazing I'm just going to speak honestly with you men here especially. It's amazing the number of men I talk to that struggle with lust and even pornography but won't delete Safari or YouTube or sign up for an internet filter because it just won't work or work won't let me. Jesus says, cut out your eye. And sometimes you aren't even willing to cut off your phone. Christ calls his people out of love to fight against lust. And then when we fail to say, I am poor in spirit, help me, and to keep fighting. Third, Jesus speaks next on divorce. He wants us to love others by refraining from anger, from lust, and then to protect the sacredness of marriage. We're going to talk more about this when we get to Matthew 19, okay? So I'm going to be quick here. But mainly, Jesus is addressing an abuse in the Jewish world of his time in this area. Any Jewish man could divorce his wife for basically any reason— If he gave her a certificate of divorce, which validated the divorce and protected the woman from corporal punishment for being an adulteress. So, in the name of being kind, it was actually highly repressive to women. And as you might imagine, divorce for any reason whatsoever was rampant in Jesus' day, just as it is in our day. And Jesus is unbelievably clear here all divorce is a sin except on the ground of sexual immorality. Again, we're going to look more at that when we get to Matthew 19. But suffice it to say that the goal of this command is the lifelong love of marriage partners. Jesus wants disciples to love their spouses deeply. Dale Bruner summarizes the first three commandments that Jesus gives by saying this. Jesus' disciples are to be characterized morally by a countercultural war, against temperamental and sexual laxity. Fourth, stick with me. Verse 33, Jesus addresses the ninth commandment, which says you shall not bear false witness. But he does it by discussing oaths. And this might seem strange to us, but in first century Israel, oaths were everywhere. That's what he's alluding to there in verse 34, 35, 36. People would take oaths, and we can understand this, to get others to take their words seriously, to get others to believe them. And and so the larger purpose between Christ's law here is the command of truth. Jesus seeks to protect speech in the community. Just like the two previous commands, Jesus sought to protect sex. And you can understand it, I hope. We still do this today. I swear I'm telling you the truth. I swear on my mother's grave. I promise You've got to believe me. We take oaths all the time because we live in a culture of lies, a culture of doublespeak, a culture of doubt and skepticism about words and truth. So we use oaths in a way or as a way to get people to believe us, to trust us. And like the other issues Jesus deals with here, this can be a way of gaining illicit power over people instead of loving people. What Jesus is saying is that we are just to be honest all the time, and then we won't need to take oaths. All Christian speech should be transparently truthful. When a Christian says, I will be there, the Christian will be there. When a Christian says, no, the Christian means no. By obeying this little command, a Christian's whole life is invested with the seriousness of an oath, Jesus says. Next, he talks about vengeance and retaliation. Verse 38, he recasts the eye-for-an-eye language of the Old Testament, known as the lex talionis, literally the law of the tooth. Christ says that equity and justice are not all he wants for his people. By the way, that is an equitable law. An an eye-for-an-eye was intended to prevent an overreaction in response to an injustice. But Jesus says, I don't just want justice for my people. I want my people to be exorbitant in mercy and meekness. I want my people to go out of their way to try to help and to be helpful. Even to those who are trying to harm us. Or who have ill intentions towards us. Don't live for vengeance. Do not retaliate. Isn't it true that the most popular movies in the world, maybe other than romantic comedies or Avengers movies, are revenge movies? Marianne and I just just watched Reacher season two. Have you seen Reacher? It's based on a bunch of books. And Reacher's basically a massive bulk of retaliation. His entire existence is intended to get even and get back At the bad guys, we love those sorts of stories. They go deep into our psyche. But what Jesus demands of us here is vastly countercultural. When you are personally injured by someone, your world should not become paying them back. That is what all the examples he gives are about. Verse 39 through 42, we don't repay evil with evil, but with attempts to do good, with attempts to love. Let's round it out. Last one, verse 43. Enemy love. This is, this is the craziest of all. It's the most radical thing Jesus says here, I think. We're not just to love our friends. We're to love our enemies. We're more familiar with the Godfather way of doing it. Keep your friends close. Keep your enemies closer. But not so you can love them, right? So you can watch them. So you can control them. So you can manipulate them. Interestingly, in classical culture, fierce loyalty to friends and fierce hatred of enemies were precisely what were considered noble qualities in their heroes. And so I think this command is the summary command for Jesus. He says it's a way you can be like God, who thankfully loves his enemies, you and me, We're not asked by Jesus here to love our enemies' character or their actions or their teachings or anything else about them. We're asked only to love the enemies themselves. And he finally gives us a motive in verse 45. Did you see it? He basically says, if we live in this countercultural way, we will come to experience God the Father in an especially intimate manner. We will become God's close sons and daughters. We will become in personal experience what we are in fact, members of God's family. So love your enemies and pray for the people that really have it out for you. Remember the order. Jesus fulfills the law for us. But then he calls us into a radical new way of living. We're not meant to feel dread. We're free in Christ but we're free in Christ to obey him because we love him. We're not meant to feel obligation. We don't obey out of drudgeful duty. We obey because of God's kind grace to us. And we're not meant to feel resignation. We can in the spirit grow in obedience and faithfully follow Christ. How wonderful is God, guys? He loves us so much that he'll accept us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. I love this summary from the Barman Declaration. It says this, As Jesus Christ is God's assurance of the forgiveness of all of our sins, so in the same way and with the same seriousness, he is also God's mighty claim upon our whole Jesus has saved you, and now Jesus claims you. Does your life reflect it? Let's pray.